the words that I'd like to draw your attention to are found once again in the book of First Timothy. First Timothy chapter four. We'll be looking at uh, verses six through ten. First Timothy chapter four, reading verses six through ten. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Please pray with me once again. Lord, we, we, we cannot pray enough. Because we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the vine. We are the branches. Lord, we need your every ounce of spiritual growth and effectiveness. Lord, we can't grow in your word unless you give us the grace to understand and even apply it to our lives. And so we pray that you would make the most of the service. Lord, help us to understand clearly what your word says so that we would individually even know how we need to apply it to our lives. Lord, and if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, that you would make that clear to them and make it clear what they need to do in order to repent and to trust in you alone for salvation. For Father, we don't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And Lord, if there is such a soul in the church today, help us to have contact with them and to love them and, and present to them the hope effectively so that they might have salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I, I've, over the years, been surprised at the common assumption that uh, most people have regarding the death of a believer. And that, that a common assumption being that when any Christian dies, that they are uh, inevitably going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant despite how faithful or unfaithful that person had been really in their life. Of course, you know that that phrase comes from the parables of Jesus in which the very point that he is making in those parables is that not all of his servants will inevitably be faithful. The point of the parables is you're going to have some that are faithful and some that are not. And it should be the desire of all of our hearts to be the faithful servants. Only the good servants are commended. Not all the servants. We saw this in today's scripture reading, Luke 12, 42, where Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And he says, Later on in verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And the one that did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
And then it's pointed to everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The point is, we are all responsible for what Christ has given us in regard to what we know in the word, in regard to the resources he's given us for the building up of the kingdom of God. So just because we're servants, and if you're in Christ, you are his servant. But just being in Christ does not automatically make you faithful. We need to pursue faithfulness in order to receive commendation. And therefore, our greatest ambition should be to want to be a good servant of Christ. And that is the text, the point of the text before us. Notice he says in verse six, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In fact, that is really what Paul is addressing in verse four. He's talking about godliness, but one of the obviously aspects of godliness is being a good servant. And so he's telling Timothy here, this is what being a good servant will look like. And he gives a number of commands or imperatives in this, uh, in these verses six through 16. You might recall in chapter three, verse 16, Paul introduced the subject of godliness. And he said in verse 16, that the mystery of godliness, if you think of it as the, the revelation or the, even what it shows there, the source of godliness is not our own efforts. It is Christ and what he accomplished. We don't bring about our own godliness. He brought it about through his faithfulness. And that's trumpeted. And he focuses upon this subject of godliness through chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 uh, debunk the false teaching that godliness can be brought about through abstaining from certain things, in particular marriage or certain foods. And he says that belief is a doctrine of demons from deceitful spirits. It's evil. It's wrong. Have nothing to do with it. And then in uh, the verses that follow, Paul explains to Timothy and therefore Christians what they should do in order to pursue godliness. So this is, chapter four is all about godliness. And at this point, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. You've made it very clear in past sermons and you just stated it, Joseph, that godliness comes through our being in Christ. He brings it about. And yet then you just said we need to pursue godliness. What gives? The, the reality is the work that Christ began in us is not yet complete. We're half-baked, you could think of it. Uh, or actually, better yet, we're, we're in the process of being baked. We're not done. We've received a circumcised heart, to use the Old Testament phrase for regeneration. We've been regenerated. We've been born again. We're, we, we have been set free from sin, our slavery to sin. However, we still live in a corrupted flesh. In fact, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 6 through 8. It's all about this, this tension between the, the, the flesh and the spirit. Until we receive our glorified bodies, we will face tension. Our flesh will want to do what it used to do and just living for its desires and its passions of the flesh. But our spirit will want to submit itself to the will of God. As Paul says in Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other 
to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And, and this really is the point of chapter 4 uh, of 1 Timothy. It's, he here instructs us on how we can wage this war better even against the flesh. How do we keep the flesh subdued in light of the work of Christ in us? Again, Paul explains this warfare in Romans 6 through 8. In fact, go ahead and turn there. Romans 8. Notice how Paul kind of culminates his explanation of this war between the flesh and the spirit. Verse 5, Romans 8, 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Right? That's unbelievers. They follow the flesh. They do what the flesh wants. But those who live in the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But he's saying we're in the spirit, and therefore we need to follow the spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. So another way to think of this is walking in the flesh really just means to live for self. It's just doing what you want, doing what you feel like, doing what's in your best interests, or at least what you think your best interests are. However, the good servant lives for God and his glory, wanting to bring him honor, wanting to bring him praise, wanting to serve him well. So what, what changes when a person gets saved is the master of their life. Previously, self was the master. When a person's born again, they want to just live for God. That's, that's the difference. However, they're not, we're not very good at it because we still have a sinful flesh. And so we need to pers- continue to pursue godliness. Christ has changed our heart, but we need to continue to put to death the flesh and live according to his will as revealed in his word. So prior to salvation, we're really no better than a bunch of wild dogs. Just running around, following our own instincts and passions, doing whatever we can get away with. Uh, The only thing holding us back is the fear of consequences or even death. But if we had free reign, we would just do what any wild dog would do. But when we receive a circumcised heart, we want to submit ourselves to God. We, as it says in Romans, we want to obey him from the heart to live for him and not for self. So when we're saved, it's not like um, when Christ imputes godliness to us that we're possessed by him in, in a way that we're like robots or like a demon possesses a, a being. He sets us free from sin and death and, he, and, and the Holy Spirit dwells us and instructs us, right, in, according to the word of God and the spirit reminds us of what the word says so we would live in a way that honors him but we still have freedom to choose to live according to the flesh or to choose to live according to the spirit and so because we had that that's real we need to continue to remind ourselves we need to pursue godliness Christ has given us godliness but we need to therefore live according to what he has given And so moment by moment, we have this freedom and ability to live for him. And there's this ongoing tension. And so having said that, at first glance, it might appear then that the secret to godliness, the secret to growing in godliness, to to being Christ-like, 
is just to put, is, is to um, uh, discipline the flesh. To, to put the flesh under control. And so if I can discipline my body, then I will grow in godliness. And that was the root of the false teaching in Ephesus. Right? Just if you, if you just have self-control to abstain from marriage or to abstain from food, those are the really godly people because they've learned to subdue the flesh. And so you could see how that might appear valid, but this is the key. It's not suppressing the flesh that leads to godliness, but through the spirit leading the flesh to follow the will of God, not self. We'll say that again. It's not just simply suppressing the flesh, having self-control and the will to not follow fleshly impulses, but rather to the spirit leading us to do what God wants. Right. So one could be, um, for instance, abstain from certain foods and show self-control. But God doesn't tell them to abstain from foods. So that's just raw self-diffidence. It's not obedience and it's not for the glory of God because God hasn't told them to do so. Right. So the ch- what changes is a desire just to do what God has called us to do, be faithful to him. It's not simply about self-control. Does that make sense? So self-control is a fruit of the spirit, not the root. Right. That, that, that's where these false teachers got it wrong. They were focusing on just an aspect of obedience and making that that fruit, that one aspect, the whole thing. No, the whole thing is Christ in us and living in obedience to him. Self-control being just one of many fruits of the spirit. So. Paul, in light of this, gives instruction to Timothy and to us so that we would know what how is how should we live now in order to pursue godliness? We need to pursue godliness because we're not yet like Christ, even though we've been born again. And so what does it look like? If it's not just self-control, bodily discipline, what is it? What do we do? How do we pursue Christ's likeness? And that's really the main instruction in verses 6 through 10. Paul begins by saying, uh, making two points. The godly servant trains in the truth. And secondly, the godly servant pursues godliness. If you like alliteration, you could say he pursues piety or goes after godliness. But just for the sake of clarity, I... I put down, but pursues godliness. Let's look at that first point. He trains in the truth. A good servant of Christ trains in the truth. And this is the point of verses 6 through 7. First, they train the truth, they train in the truth by training others in the truth, right? He says, put these things before the brothers. But not only that, they themselves are trained in the truth. Notice he says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And then thirdly, the good servant avoids error. So all those aspects have to do with training in the truth. They train others, they train themselves, and in training themselves, they avoid error. So we see this in verse 6. They train others in the truth. If you put these things before the brothers. That, That phrase, put these things before, it's a figurative phrase. It means to... To lay out like on a table so everyone can see. It's obvious. Everybody can look at what you're talking about and examine it and, and touch it for themselves. That's, that's the idea. Make the truth clear. Timothy, 
make what God has said clear to everyone, that they would know what God's will for them is. And the fact that the church is to receive this instruction demonstrates again that Paul is not just writing to Timothy this instruction, but he wants Timothy to pass this on to the church. So even this instruction that's given to Timothy here in this passage and the whole letter really is applicable to all of us. Yes, Paul's writing to a singular person who is a pastor, but everything that's said applies to us as well. And so he wants Timothy to pass these truths along. Because Paul wants the church to be full of good servants. I mean, that was, that was Paul's ambition. He wanted to be a good and faithful servant, and likewise it should be our ambition. And so the, we need to train others in the truth. Remember what Jesus said. Right, we, we cite this all the time. The greatest among you shall what? Be your servant. Right? Diakonos. Where we get the word deacon. Same word that's used here. Right? The greatest among you shall be not the richest, not the, the most respected necessarily, not the most accomplished, not the wisest, not, not the one who can cite all the, all the verses of the Bible, who can quote Burkhoff and Calvin. Those are all good things. But the greatest among you will be the one who no longer lives for himself, but for the interests of another, namely Christ. That should be our greatest ambition. God, make me a servant of you. Remember what also Jesus said in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, I'll say it again. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I mean, that, that truth needs to be just deeply etched into our hearts as a church so that we would be ambitious to be servants, all of us. When we see the needs in one another's life, our first thought should be, do I want to do, should not be, do I want to do that? It should be, can I meet that need or would the Lord have me focus my time and attention elsewhere? We should, just, we should just be overwhelmed with wanting to care for one another and, and, and reach the lost because of how Christ served us. And right, he says, in light of how I have served you, I left my father's throne above, took on flesh, took even the form of a servant, even to death on a cross. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to. It's not just about learning doctrine. It's not just about learning truth, though that's a a key part of it. It's about that truth transforming us to, again, live not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And that means in love and in compassion and patience and care for others. Right? It's easy to memorize Bible verses. It is hard to love your enemy. It's easy to read good theology books, but it is really hard to submit to an unjust authority. 
But that's what we're called to. We're called to follow him. And so we need to train ourselves. Not only do we train others, we need to train ourselves. Notice he says, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. Right? So this is a part of the training. In order to be godly, we need to know what godliness looks like. We need to know what God is like. Right? Godliness is God-likeness or Christ-likeness. And again, it's not, it's not just mental, but that's a part of it. It begins by having our minds renewed. That's why we come and we hear the word preached and we read the word on our own. And so the words of faith and good doctrine here just quite simply means scripture, knowing what the Bible says, and then the implications of the Bible, what we'd call doctrine. You could think of it as systematic theology or biblical theology or even practical theology. So we need to know both what the Bible says, being trained in how to interpret the Bible and even how to read the Bible. And then secondly, we need to know what are the implications of that on our life practically and even how we think about everything else. So this is the curriculum of the godly servant. You want to be a godly servant, which I hope after everything that's been said so far, you would. This is this is the curriculum. This is what you would study. If you're going to major in college and being a godly servant, this is what you would study. The words of faith and doctrine. Notice Paul doesn't say train yourself in Ephesian culture. Knowing the Ephesian culture really well so you can reach them. He doesn't say train yourself in good business practices or in how to use technology effectively. He doesn't say learn fashion trends and be familiar with political movements so when you're preaching you can sound really smart and in the know. I mean, think about that. He only mentions two things. Now, there may be other things, but clearly this is what is emphasized. This is what makes a good servant not those other things. And notice he also says being constantly trained, right? The, the, the tense of that participle suggests it's an ongoing activity. It's not just something that happened when Timothy graduated from Paul's seminary, but it's something Timothy needs to continue to do as he studies and as he preaches. But even if he's not preaching, just to continue to strengthen his understanding of God's will. So finishing his training with Paul was just the beginning. And he needs to continue day after day. Just, just like Navy SEALs, when they graduate from BUDS, they don't just stop training when they are, are, are sent on deployment. They continue to train day after day after day. Um, you guys might be familiar with uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy, uh, who was killed in Afghanistan in June 28, 2005, uh, receiving actually the, the Medal of Honor for his uh, valor. Um, he was known for uh, what became known as the Murph or the Murphy workout. So if you're familiar with CrossFit, this is a famous workout for, for those who participate in CrossFit. Um, this is what it consists of. A, a mile run followed by 100 pull-ups, then 200 push-ups, then 300 air squats, and then another mile run, all with a weight vest. Like that was, that was his, okay, I have a day off. I'm not going to go um, uh, 
fight the bad guys, so I'm going to train. So what's he do for, for training? This tremendously difficult physical workout, right? Just because he was done doesn't mean he stopped training. And that's true of everything in every area of life. Like even parents are continuing to, to, to learn from other people how to better parent. Uh, they read books like in your careers. You're constantly having to do training. If you're a physician or a lawyer or whatever, training is an ongoing thing. And likewise, as Christians, we need to continually to train ourselves. And if, if we have been bought for Christ to be his servants, this is what should be first and foremost in our mind. We should care more about training in godliness than we do about being effective at our work. And we need to be effective at our work. We need to do the training they offer us. We need to be faithful in our responsibilities. But this should be even more important. Because ultimately we serve Christ, not our employer. And so, it's worth asking, how is this happening in your life? How are you being trained in the words of faith and in doctrine? How is your family doing in this? What, what would be the likely consequences if it's not happening? Just think, what, what, would, what would be the consequences for Timothy if he is not training himself in the word? If he just kind of ignores Paul's admonition here. Well, he could be deceived by doctrines of demons. In fact, he could even teach doctrines of demons. How would he know if it is or not? How would he know how to combat such doctrines? Uh, he could also just become self-deceived, thinking that what he is teaching is true, when in fact, he's actually not teaching what the Bible te- teaches. He's just teaching his own preferences. He's really just being led by his own heart or by the surrounding culture. And if that's what happens, what happens to the pillar in support of the truth? It crumbles. If the pillar in the support of the truth, the church crumbles, what happens to the surrounding world? There's no more truth. There's no more light. So this is not a light command. Brothers and sisters, we have to be doing this. Now, we don't have to necessarily devote 30 hours a week to doing it. But we need to make it a priority if we're going to be good servants. But from the beginning, Timothy has followed the truth. See the end of verse 6, which you've carefully followed. And that that verb there means to to follow beside, actually to pay special attention to, to, to make one's own, to understand the phrase, the phrase actually articulates that from the beginning, Timothy has been a faithful, disciplined student of the word and doctrine. He didn't daydream during class. He took careful notes. During church services, he wasn't checking, you know, his fantasy football team on his cell phone. He didn't skim the, his book on biblical doctrine. He didn't just do his Bible reading in order to check off the box. But he, he read the Bible in order to understand it and apply those truths to his life. He wanted to know the truth for himself so that he could himself follow God, but also help others. All right, Timothy wasn't like so many pastors today uh, who know more about Star Wars 
than they do know about the Word of God. Or Christians, even, that, that know more about the lives of celebrities than they do about the Bible. They're more familiar with Pokemon than they are with the, the judges and kings of Israel. Now, I like Star Wars and Pokemon. I'm not big on the lives of celebrities, but I mean, those things aren't necessarily sinful. But something you should devote yourself to, to be masters in. I mean, many Christians are more familiar with the depth chart of their favorite sports team than they are with what are the books of the Bible. Right? They could tell you the three deep, but they couldn't tell you where to find you know, the book of Job. And I think that's understandable if you've only been a Christian a few months. But if you've grown up in church, you should be pretty familiar with the Bible. At least have a minimal understanding. And, and truth be told, I grew up in the church and I didn't have a very good understanding of the Bible. I, um, it wasn't until college I finally started going to a good church that I started to realize I didn't really know the Bible at all. In fact, I remember one of my good friends, Justin McKittrick, who's a pastor down in uh, Florida. Uh, he, he sat me down. Uh, he said he was going to help help me grow in the faith. And I was all for that. I was excited. And I said, but I, I don't we don't really need to spend time in the Bible. I know the Bible. And he said, oh, OK, well, let's just start with with the gospel. Can you share the gospel with me? And I thought, what? What's the gospel? I didn't, I didn't know what the gospel was. Which just shows that somebody can actually think they know the Bible and have no clue with even the beginning elements. And that was me. And if that's you, I'm not saying this to give you a guilt trip, but there's an opportunity for you to turn around and to, and to, and to feed yourselves on rich food. There's so much in the Word of God. You know, I think it was uh, Augustine, Augustine who said, you know, the Bible is so rich, you know, a, a, a toddler can play around in it and have fun. It's like, a, like a, on the shores of a lake, and yet it's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Right? It, it, there's some simple truths that even a toddler can find richly rewarding, and yet the most brilliant among us just never fathom. So much to learn. And so to be a good servant, we need to be like Timothy and train ourselves in the truth. Um, and, and in training ourselves in the truth, we need to do that so we can make the truth clear to others. But it also entails we need to guard ourselves from error. As Paul says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That word uh, have nothing to do means to refuse, to, to shun, to reject, to avoid. And that word irreverent means that which is worldly, sometimes tra translated profane. It, it means that which is pointless or, or insignificant. Don't pay attention to that stuff. The idea is that these tales are not biblical or even true. They're, they're essentially fairy tales. Right? So there's, there's teachers in the church of Ephesus, apparently, or at least in the, the surrounding city of Ephesus, who are devoting themselves to myths and teaching myths. They're, they're really good at teaching mythology. He call, Paul calls them silly myths, literally old wifely myths. And this was an idiom for stories that 
women would tell a children in the nursery. He's not demeaning the elderly or women here. It's just a, it's an idiom. It's kind of stories that you hear in the nursery is the idea. So Paul is saying, don't concern yourself with that stuff, even though it's popular in these apostate churches. Instead, immerse yourself in the word of God. And I find this remarkable because in the 21st century, it's been a fad. Maybe you've noticed this amongst pastors to be really familiar with um, television shows, movies, various forms of literature. Not again, not so much bad, but they they study these things so that they can uh, pull out the redemptive themes in like the latest Marvel movie. So they're really good at pulling out redemptive themes in popular culture, but they can't do that from the word of God themselves. They can't even exposit a text in context. And so it's, it's interesting, it's, but it's, it's not true. It's myth. At best, it's just a shadow of the truth. And so the godly servant prioritizes being trained in the truth. And then he seeks to apply that truth that he's learned to himself so that he grows in godliness. Right? That's the second point. Not only does he train in the truth, he pursues godliness. Notice he says, rather, train yourself for godliness. You're you're familiar with that word train. It's, It's where we get the word gymnasium, gymnas. And actually, it literally means to be naked. Um, because in the ancient world, when they would do their various workouts, they would do so um, without clothes on because they didn't want to be hindered by the clothing. Right? They didn't have spandex back then. So they would just strip down to near nudity or total nudity in, time, in some cases. And so Tim, Paul tells Timothy, rather than training at wrestling and boxing and gy- various gymnastic exercises, Paul says, Timothy, you should train yourself in godliness. In godliness. Right? Not, not merely to learn about the Bible, but learning how to live a life that conforms to Christ. And I, I emphasize that because, again, when we talk about, about training, it's very easy just to assume, oh, it's just intellectual. But remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up, but it's love that edifies. Right? We need the knowledge. But we also need that knowledge to apply to us. If we don't apply it, it's, it's not, it's missed, you've missed the point. The point is for it to be applied. And Christians, we're, we're, as you know, we're called to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, mind, affections, and will. Right? And, and as we learn to love God with all our being, not just part of our being, but with all our being, then we should overflow with love for others. Like this showing to others the same love that Christ has loved us. That is the fruit. That's what it looks like to be a good Christian. And so we should never be content just to win arguments. But, but be ambitious to be the most selfless caring, compassionate, patient, Christ-like person we can be. And because it's harder to do those things. 
And after telling him to train himself for godliness, Paul tells Timothy why he should train to do this. Look at, look at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. So why does Paul bring up bodily training? Like, what is, Where does that come from? Some people think it's just he's just using an illustration, right? Because there are some good uh, illustrations, I think, of 1 Corinthians 9, of exercise, you know, being disciplined for godliness. But I think actually Paul's bringing it up because of what he said in the, in the, chap, in the section we looked at last week. Regarding the, the error of the false teachers, right? They were teaching that asceticism, severe bodily discipline, withholding desires of the body is what's going to bring about godliness. And Paul's saying, that's not what brings about godliness. Now, there's, there may be some value in disciplining your body. There is some value. Like, we, there's value in being self-controlled. But self-control in and of itself is limited in its effectiveness. Right? Nobody should be ruled by their lusts. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. So I'm going to exercise self-control. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9, 7. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself shall be disqual- should be disqualified. So it's good to have self-control. There's some value to it. But it's not true that self-discipline in and of itself will naturally result in godliness. It's not inevitable that if you're a self-disciplined person, you will therefore be a godly person. And I want to emphasize that because I think it's, it's very easy to misunderstand that. Because in our culture, I mean, it's not just our culture. I don't know. I, somebody from another culture could, could affirm or deny but it's just very easy to think that the most self-disciplined people must be the most pious and godly. They may be, but they also may not be. Again, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he persecuted the church. In fact, some of the most vicious persecutors of the church are people who are severely disciplined. Godliness comes only through Christ. First Timothy 3.16, wherein again, he causes us to be born again and then gives us a desire to follow after him. So godliness is living out Christ in us. It is, again, the fruit of abiding in Christ. As we abide in Christ, we obey him. It's the fruit of abiding in Christ, not self-discipline. Self-discipline is just a fruit of godliness. It's not the source of godliness. And we can't get that mixed up. So although there's some value in training the body to submit to your will, godliness has even more value. Because it's not just the root. Sorry, because godliness is the root. It's not just the fruit. And this is actually what he means by godliness being profitable for all things. Notice how he explains the statement. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Right? Self-discipline may give us healthier bodies. It may help us use our time better and therefore we might prosper in our various responsibilities. But these benefits are temporal. In the life to come, however, 
we're not going to have bodies that are corrupted by sin, that war against us, because we're going to have glorified bodies. However, even when we have those glorified bodies, we're still going to want to be godly. That's still going to be the desire of our heart. Our ambition for godliness isn't going to cease just after we get our resurrected bodies. We're going to continue in that. And so if you pursue godliness now, none of your efforts are going to be wasted. They'll have a continuing effect. And Paul defends this assertion by citing another trustworthy statement. Right? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And you might recall that there's a number of trustworthy statements in the pastoral epistles uh, where Paul makes, uh, brings, up, brings them up. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, 1 Timothy 3.1, 2 Timothy 2.11, Titus 3.8. These are short, pithy, doctrinal statements that are just easy for Christians to remember, to help them defend against false teaching. Right? They're similar to like a child's catechism. So again, if I were to say, what's the chief end of man? Many of you would say it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's, that's, not a, that's not a citation of scripture. That's just a short, uh, easy way to remember our chief end. Right? These trustworthy statements serve a, in a similar fashion. They're true, uh, but they're not uh, quotations of Scripture themselves. Of course, now they're in the Scripture and they become Scripture, but at the time that wasn't evident. And there's some scholarly debate here about where, these, where this trustworthy statement actually begins in this passage and where it ends. So what is the trustworthy statement? Now I'm going to spare you all the details of that argument, but... Um, I would say it probably begins after the because. Because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And so the beginning of verse 10, where he says, for to this end we toil and strive, that actually serves as an application to the, servant, to the trustworthy statement that follows. So I think that's the trustworthy statement. We have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Knowing that trustworthy statement, that is the end for which we are laboring and striving. I think that's what, how this is structured. Paul's point again is that Christians labor and they strive after godliness because of the certainty that Christ will accomplish, finish the work that he's begun. All right? Christians know that God will one day complete salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that Christ's work was finished upon the cross, right? He said it is finished. But the application of that work has not been fully realized yet. And going back to what I said in the beginning, we are not fully saved. And what I mean by that is we still sin. We still struggle and it won't be until we get our resurrected bodies and frankly it won't be until the whole earth is rid of sin and the new heavens and new earth that Christ's work is fully accomplished so Christ has done all he needs to but the full application of that has not yet been realized right and so we labor and we strive knowing that in our laboring and striving for godliness we're not wasting our time 
We're not going to fall short of our goal because we know God will make sure we make the finish line. So if you're running a race, if you if, if you imagine the Christian life is running a race, you you run with all your energy, getting rid of every encumbrance. And, you, and, and you're after a while, you just start to lose heart or energy. You can know with certainty you're going to finish this race. Right. The, 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 the miles behind you were not wasted. It's and how do you know that? Because you finishing the race isn't dependent upon how much energy you have right now. It's not dependent upon uh, you having the right map. God will get you there. God will get you there. Your salvation is secure in him. Now, it's not done yet, but you can know with certainty it will eventually be completed. And that's why we still struggle with sin. The full application has been realized. We, we still live in a corrupted world with corrupted bodies. And yet, because we do, we keep laboring, we keep striving so that we would live lives that honor God. But our hope is not set on our labor and striving. Our hope is not set on our own efforts at becoming godly, but on the fact that God will save us, right? We have set our hope on the living God. Notice Paul doesn't, he's talking about labor and striving, but he doesn't say, and we set our hope on our efforts, on our strength, on our will. No, he says we set our hope on God. Therefore, we labor and strive. Right? Very similar to what Paul says in Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained this, speaking of godliness, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And he does that because he knows with certainty one day God's going to call him. He's going to receive a resurrected body. So this certainty that we have that Christ will complete the work that he's begun in us doesn't lead to indolence. It doesn't lead to laziness. It leads to labor and work. And in fact, even our efforts now at growing in godliness are actually on account of his work in us. So it's not just he's going to complete that work one day. Even the work that we're doing now is actually because he's at work in us. Right? Colossians 1.29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's all Christ. He died. He rose again. He causes us to be born again. He empowers us to live faithfully. And he will complete the work that he's got begun within us. All of that is true. And it's also true we participate in it through His grace. Now, just before we wrap up, a word needs to be said about what Paul says in verse 10. Particularly that phrase, God is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. We need to just kind of direct a little attention because many people look at that verse and they think, well, is Paul teaching universalism? 
Because it seems to suggest it, or at least a general atonement, that all people's sins are paid for. Well, first of all, we know that this text doesn't teach universalism because of so many other scriptures, which you're familiar with. But it's also clear from the text itself, because notice the text teaches, um, he says, especially of believers. If this text teaches that all men are saved, then what does that phrase mean? It's superfluous. If all men are saved, what does it mean especially believers? Like, why would you say that? It's redundant. There is no unique salvation of believers if it's teaching universalism. So what is meant then by all people? And he says he's the savior of all people. If it it doesn't mean every single person who's ever lived on the face of this earth. Well, the phrase uh, quite simply just means all kinds of people. And this is how it's used in other parts of Scripture, too. Um, But it means men, women, and children, uh, rich, poor, every ethnicity. God is not just uniquely a savior for just a certain ethnic group or people of a certain intelligence. He's the savior of everybody. In fact, he's the only savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life for everyone. That's what this means. Anyone who looks upon him and, and seeks salvation in him will be saved. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what sins they've committed. He is the only savior. That's the point. In fact, you actually might recall a similar phrase in 1 Timothy 2.4. You can look at that. When Paul writes, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And, and I bring that text up because it, it actually parallels what Paul is saying here. They work together. Notice the parallelism. See how the phrase, the savior of all people, and especially those who believe, corresponds to the structure of 4.4. The first phrase in each demonstrates that God has made salvation available to all people. He desires all to be saved. And he's the savior of all people. The point being in both, God has made salvation available to anybody who would take it. Second phrase, that in reality, only those who believe will actually experience that salvation. He's the savior of all people, but only those who trust him, who repent from their sin, will actually experience the salvation that is available to them. So it doesn't teach universalism or even a general atonement. It actually uh, teaches a limited or particular atonement. So another way to say this is these verses teach that God is potentially the Savior of all people, but only actually the Savior of those who believe. And in this context, it's intended to emphasize that God will save all of us. He will complete his work. He will make us godly. And therefore, all our laboring, all of our striving is not in vain because he will complete that work. So in summary, what do we practically do to grow in godliness? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that godliness comes only through Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16. We have to have it set in our mind. If you are not a believer in Christ, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you will never be godly. Period. Ever. You, he is the only way to, to, to receive righteousness and godliness. Secondly, 
We need to devote ourselves to the Bible and its doctrines. Verse 6. We also need to refuse to feed on folly. I mean, a, a little entertainment, a little Star Wars, a little, you know, what's the popular television shows or movies today? Like, not sinful, but that should not be what we feast upon. Those should be supplemental. Entertainment should have a limited um, impact upon our life. We should train ourselves in the Word. And we need to, again, point four, devote ourselves to the application of Scripture. Not just what it says, but living it out, right? Verse 10, we need to labor and strive to be Christ-like. And of course, in all of this, we need to trust that it's Christ that saves us. It's not our works. It's not our effort. Christ saved us in the past. He's at work within us now, conforming us to Christ-likeness. And He will, at the right time, call us to be with Him and give us resurrected bodies in the future. All He will accomplish. And we need to rest in that. So as you fight the fight and you even see failure, don't lose heart. Because we've set our hope not on our feelings, not on our efforts, but on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Let's pray. Lord, you are our only hope. And I pray that you would just remind us of these truths as we begin to get self-focused or as we immerse ourselves in folly so that we might grow in grace and in godliness but not so that people would admire us or even respect us for those things, but God, so that we'd be more effective in serving you. Lord, that we would please you, not just by what we do, but even how we think, what we love, um, what we meditate upon. Lord, you know all the various areas where we each need to grow, and I pray that you'd make those things clear to us so that we'd be a church that you would say, Well done, good and faithful church. We ask this in Christ's name.